There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Content warning. This podcast discusses violence, murder, suicide, civil unrest, aggressive policing, racism, and lynching. If you or anyone you know is considering suicide, or self-harm, or just need to talk about problems, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text the Crisis Text Line at 741-741. Previously, on After the Uprising. If this happened to your child, wouldn't you want to get down to the bottom of this and find out what really happened? So I think he really wanted his, the love from his mom, but it was just kind of hard sometimes. Diane, he did have a hard head. He was hard headed. Phones that have a Qualcomm chipset usually give me an option to bypass the passcode, but I never have luck with them. I'm not too hopeful on it. Someone's trying to hang you. You're going to fight. You're going to end up with some type of scars or bruises somewhere. That man had nothing. I mean, this is speculation. But do you think Danye would do something so far as, like, try to arrange to get Marcel hurt? Danye would do it himself. We went into his YouTube searches, and then there's a search for a very specific phrase, which is how to tie a hangman's noose with a blanket. Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! 
what you're looking at is the aftermath of the grand jury deciding not to indict Officer Wilson. A young man found hanging from a tree in October. His mom believes someone murdered her son, targeting him. Donye became an activist in the wake of the shooting death of Michael Brown by a white police officer. That's why Melissa McKinnis wants St. Louis County Police to dig deeper into her son's death. He was not suicidal. This is After the Uprising, the death of Donye Dion Jones. If I really felt like that's what my, my son wanted to do, I would let it go because I can start, I can move on. I can start breathing, you know. And my, my children tell you this all the time, but we are against the whole suicide thing. We're not, I'm not judging anybody, but we've always been against suicide, you know, because I have a friend who committed suicide. We sat down and talked about it. And Danielle, Danielle and Javon always said, you know, you ain't got to worry about me going out that way, he said. And I, I don't really want people to look at him as, you know, as being judgmental, but he said, you know, that's weak. That's weak as hell. Leaving people behind, you, you just give up and you kill yourself and you're going to hell. You know, that's how we look at suicide. But if, honestly, if that's what my baby wanted and somehow he wasn't getting peace or if I felt like he was depressed and he was just really, he just couldn't make it. Well, you know, something huge happened. I would understand that. And I would be like, you know what? That's what he wanted. May God bless him or, you know, what? spare his soul. You know, but I would be able to move on. I would stop my grieving process. That's not it. I'm a hungry, I'm, I'm positive, we are positive. Diane wasn't even on any of that, none of it. So now we have to fight for them. That was a clip from our very first long phone chat with Melissa, back when she still used the burner phone we sent her to talk to us. She was insistent at the time that if she believed Danya had died by suicide, she could begin to grieve and eventually move on with her life. She would express this sentiment to us many times over the next two years. And we tried to always make good on our original commitment to give her the benefit of the doubt in accepting the possibility that Danye was the victim of a homicide. And insofar as this podcast is concerned, we have spent now eight episodes doing just that. But in this episode, we would like to take a beat to look at suicide, particularly as it pertains to black Americans. If I could just start by just having you state your name and your profession. I'm Sherry Davis Moloch. It's like three words, no hyphen. I'm in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at George Washington University. I'm an associate professor there. Professor Moloch has written extensively about suicide amongst young black people. One of her papers that we read talked about stigmas surrounding suicide. For many, 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 many years, no one was really doing research on black suicides, and in part because of the myth that black people don't complete suicide. So the other problem was that up until the 1980s, 
most of the national data, um, the organizations that collect data nationally, were not delineated or categorized by race. So when people say black people never did this, I'm like, we don't actually know that because at that time, the data was not really clearly delineated by race. It was usually whites and non-whites were grouped together. So what groups under non-whites was doing or not doing in terms of suicide rates, it was hard to, to, to make a difference with that or to figure that out. And I think that, unfortunately, because there's a long history in this country of black uh, people, particularly black men, being lynched, that it's understandable that if someone finds a loved one typically in a public space and they're hunt- and they're hanging, that the immediate conclusion that many families might draw is that their, their loved one has been lynched as opposed to that they may have taken their, their own life. And again, sometimes it's, it's hard to clearly delineate whether or not a hanging is an accident or a lynching. For medical examiners, it's hard sometimes to make those differentiations. It depends on the evidence that's there. But having said that, if you are from a cultural group that you believe does not complete suicide or you believe that it's something that white people do and black people don't do, then when you have these kinds of unfortunate events, it's easier to not believe that it's a suicide. It's also just hard and challenging because I think as a parent, I know that no one wants to believe that their child took his or her own life because as parents, we feel responsible for our children. We feel like we should be able to help them and that we should should have known this was coming. Sometimes there are no um, clear-cut warning signs. Like, what would be some of those signs? I mean, because I think people have this idea that you know, if someone's going to take their own life, that leading up to that, there's like a huge personality switch or, you know, we hear things like, oh, they, they started giving away their possessions or, you know, like we, I think. So some people do that, but some people have more subtle changes in their behavior. Sometimes people have been struggling with depressive symptoms for a while, which could be, you know, sad mood for several weeks on end, feeling lethargic, not interested in interacting with friends and family members in the same way they used to, not engaging in activities that they used to find pleasurable. Um, Sometimes you, and I don't know how old this person was, but in younger people, particularly teenagers, you may see more agitation and more acting out. As far as Danye is concerned, nothing anyone ever said to us about his behavior sounded like he was acting out or angry. But there was definitely concern amongst his family members about how in his last two weeks of life he stopped wanting to go anywhere. Everyone who lived in the house said that he was spending a lot of time in the basement. The basement was where he was sleeping on a couch, and there was a TV down there too. It's where Danye and Derek watched that Boston Celtics game on Danye's last day alive. So it's not like the basement was a dungeon or anything. And everyone said that when they went down there, they would find him studying real estate materials. Was this self-isolation a warning sign? Was Danye removing himself from family activity because he was depressed? And if he was depressed, why not tell somebody? Or at least leave a suicide note? I think another myth is that people, you know, they say, well, there's no note. But most people who complete suicide don't leave a note. Suicides in younger people can also be more impulsive, and that might be one reason why you don't have as many notes there. So in younger people, they're less likely to have a really well-thought-out plan. And for young men in particular, hanging and from firearms 
are the two top methods of choices for completing suicide. And those two methods, uh, firearms and hangings, are very, very highly lethal. You know, there's a common statement that, you know, black people don't hang themselves or particularly black people don't hang themselves from trees. So what are the rates of taking one's life through hanging by black men? So normally the data is not disaggregated to that degree. So if they're, when they do the data from the medical examiners of the coroner's offices, they're going to do cause of death. And for um, hanging, it's going to be asphyxiation. That's the cause. It's not going to delineate down to was the person hanging from a tree versus hanging in their room. I mean, there is some truth to the fact that most people, when they're when they take their lives, do it in ways that are easily accessible. So, for example, it's easier to hang oneself in one's house, for example, in one's closet, or even from a beam in the house, is because it's easier to get to. Does that make sense to you? What I'm saying? Yes. But it doesn't mean that does not necessarily mean that people don't hang themselves from trees because sometimes they do. Is there anything around hanging that we can say we kind of know regarding, like, whether it's a, a first choice? What drives one to pick that as the method? So the first choice for both men and women, young men and women, is firearms because it's more likely to, to result in a death. The most lethal method is firearms. The second most lethal method is hanging. So what, what, when people choose one versus the other has all to do with access. If a person doesn't have a firearm easily accessible in their home, then they might consider hanging because you can do it in your home. You can do it anywhere. So basically it's what people have sort of around them. accessible, right. It's accessible. Danye did not own a gun at the time of his death. He had previously, but supposedly the gun was stolen back when he lived with Deja. Professor Moloch said that people typically use what they have at their disposal that they think will be the most fatal. In Episode 7, Melissa said that there was rope in their garage, and the house also had extension cords and belts. If Danye did want to die by suicide and had no access to a gun, and thus decided that hanging would be the best method, it is still hard for us to understand why he would choose to use a fitted bedsheet for the ligature. In prison where inmates don't have access to much, A bedsheet's an understandable choice, but when a rope is readily available? And then there's the huge elephant in the room. Danye knows his mother has spent the last four years fighting for the dignity of black lives. Why, then, would he choose a method of suicide that so closely resembles a racist lynching? People are behaving as if people are are really being logical and that the, the completion or the death is clearly thought through. That's not always the case at all. So a young person could also say, I know if I go to this tree, you know, this will end up in a fatality. They may not be making the connection with lynching. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Because in, the, in that moment, they're, you, we're behaving like they're thinking logically, well, I won't do that because this is where my parents are lynching. They're not thinking that either. They're just thinking that which way do I think I can do this? where the likelihood that I will die will be higher. And the the stronger that young person's intent is, and by intent I mean that they really, really want to die, they really want this to be a fatality, the more likely they are to pick a more lethal method. Have you seen, over the course of your research, anything in recent history that you thought was, I guess, suspicious insofar as the hanging, the apparent suicide by hanging, 
of a young black no, I, man. I think that black people in general are suspicious of that because of the history of lynching in this country. I, that's what I'm saying. I definitely understand why the parents would jump to that conclusion because of the history of lynching in the United States. That's that's a logical conclusion to reach. It's not far-fetched. It's just what I'm saying. It's not necessarily denial because given the length, the history of lynching in this country, is it far-fetched that their child could have died from a lynching and someone disguised it as a suicide? No, it's not. And so I think that's one of the things that's frustrating as a clinician, as a mom, and as a researcher is that it were so easy to dismiss people's concerns without considering black people have a different context than white people do, right? White people don't have a long history of lynching in the country. So, so no, that's not the conclusion they would jump to. But if you're from a, a minority group where the legacy of lynching still lives on even today in the 21st century, is it illogical or denial to jump to or to, to wonder about, is this possibly a lynching? No, it's not. Um, I kind of want to stick on this because this is really the crux of our whole show and, uh, you know, about being taken seriously and, you know, in each death being taken seriously and being properly investigated. So I I guess I would ask, what would you expect from local police and medical examiners when there is an event in which... Uh, a black person is found hanging outdoors. You know, can I say it's most likely to be a suicide than a lynching? I think statistically, yes, because statistically there are more suicides than there are lynchings, as far as I know. But do I, would I want the police department and the medical examiners to really carefully view the scene of the, of the incident? Yes. Because I don't want the, I also don't want people to assume that because the person is hanging, that the automatic conclusion is it's a suicide, because in the black community, that may not be true. And I also don't think it's fair to dismiss it as the family's in denial or they can't deal with the reality of what's going on, because lynching is a reality for black people. It's not, a, it's not something to be dismissed. Is it difficult to make these judgment calls? depending on the method and what the scene looks like at the, at the um, place of death, point of death. Yes, I'm acknowledging that it is difficult. It's not, it's not always clear cut. That's true. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. The thing about someone who dies by suicide is that after the fact, the details of their final behaviors can often point in any direction we want them to. And anything they did that seems highly irrational is easily hand-waved away because suicide itself is not a rational act. Was Danye's self-sequestering in the basement a warning sign of intense depression? Or was he just focused on his work, trying to understand the world of real estate? Would the black son of a prominent Ferguson activist really hang himself in his mother's backyard in a fashion that is reminiscent of a lynching without even leaving a note? Or is depression so all-consuming that a state of tunnel vision prevents these questions from even entering a suicidal person's mind? It's very easy to decide first what you believe happened, and then to tilt your perspective around the facts in order to paint a bullseye around that conclusion. What would you like to do together? What do you think you connected over? We like going to St. Charles, um, the St. Charles Park. That's usually the getaway spot for us. We go into the park, you know, stand by the river and talk. We usually go on drives. We like to eat food. We did that a lot. We ate a lot of food. <laughs> this is Danye's best friend, Damon Moore, the one who was shot four times, allegedly by Marcel. He helped us understand who Danye was by telling us the kinds of things they used to do together. My relationship with Javon was more, you know, we was close, but we kicked it. We had more party time, you know, went out, you know, had parties and had fun. Me and Danye's relationship was, he influenced me and, positive ways I learned from, you know, older brother, a mentor, you know what I'm saying? And he looked out for me, you know, my right-hand man. You know, we talked about more, expressed more ideas and thoughts and exploring life and shit, goals. So our relationship was much closer. I was much closer to uh, Danye. You know, how would you, like, describe him? I would describe him uh, uh, protective. The people he cared about, he protected. You know, he went all out, 110% for him. He was a kind person once you got to know him. And, uh, a caring person, but he was very, you know, quiet to himself, you know, very discreet with his actions. You know, you had to be a very close person for him to uh, let you in. But when he did uh, express himself, he was a very vocal individual. You know, he always had like this positive, but very, you know, mellow energy about him. You know, he had that type of aura. It was always positive. This description of Danye as generally mellow and quiet yet positive was pretty much how everyone described him to us. 
but we figured that Damon, as Danye's best friend, might have deeper insight into Danye's psychological and emotional health. I mean, was he a little, like, bipolar? Like, he could be really up and really down? Was he, you know, ever de- depressed? You know, not bipolar. Uh, you know, I mean, people usually go their ups and downs. I mean, he had a few things that did bother him that we talked about and discussed. You know, he had a few things that he was very adamant about and optimistic about as well. You know, it really just depended on the day and occasion of what was going on in his life at that time. He kept a lot of information in. I mean, I got a lot from him, but sometimes I had to pry information out of him, check up on him. He'd check up on me. You know, if he was going through something, he'd come by the house. We'd sit over probably, you know, a couple of uh, <laughs> Hennessy or something and just chop it up. We asked if Damon noticed a change in Donye, if he too perceived Donye as paranoid in his last weeks alive. There's a perception that he was paranoid in his final weeks. Do you have any idea why? No, he he wasn't paranoid. He wasn't paranoid. He was stressed out. Not paranoid, though. I mean, he always naturally watched over his back. He was always vigilant. He always paid attention. Cautious. That was just one of his traits. But as far as, like, up to, like, in the last few days or whatever, I know we had some talks from, from what I perceived, you know, from me talking to certain people, you know, he was, he was stressed, but I didn't get, I didn't think that it was as deep as it was. I mean, it ran across my mind, and then after everything that transpired, I thought about the conversations we had and everything like that. You know, I know it was a lot on his mind with the rumors and with the, you know, property and with his living situation, his car, he had told me about, you know, he was upset about his car being broken down. So he felt like it was a lot on his plate, a lot on his shoulder at the time. And he was staying, he was telling me like he was staying strong, you know, keeping his head up high hopes. But it was, you know, bothering him. I mean, from what I get from it, you know, I, I hear the homicide part, you know, I feel it. But in my honest opinion, after reevaluating everything, I think it was more so on the suicidal part. Of all the people we spoke with who were close with Donye, Damon was the first one who said that he believed it was likely that Donye died by suicide. Being Donye's best friend of many years, Damon's opinion holds a lot of weight. I know what conversations we've had. I know how close we were. I know certain things that he disclosed to me, you know, that he was, you know, possibly going through it that bothered him. You know, one of our last conversations was a lot of things on his mind. That's why, you know. So, I mean, it was, it was very likely so are you kind of saying like in the moment you didn't think of him as depressed but but like looking back and kind of adding it all up you felt like maybe he was no in the, in the moment i'm not gonna say i didn't feel that he was depressed. in the moment i knew that he was stressed i knew that he was you know it was bothering him i don't know how, i don't know what other word you know a, a, a less stronger word than depressed i didn't think it was as serious i didn't think it was as far as you know him killing himself. I know he cared about Miss Melissa a lot. You know, he had a lot of, he, he loved his mother dearly. I remember the first time I seen him cry, she had a gathering down in South City. And when she had, uh, gave her a speech and, you know, exposed, you know, the severity of uh, her condition. You know, he was real upset. He walked outside, walked out. He went to his car, walked to his car with him. He was in there, you know, shedding tears. But he was a very strong person. So it's a lot for him to actually cry. You know what I'm saying? So that was also on his mind. He, he was concerned about his mother's health and her stress. 
I know in his recent time, he felt like he was a burden, you know, being his age, and he felt like he was, you know, he wasn't doing enough. After Damon told us that Danye felt like he was a burden to his mother, which is something we had not heard before, Damon also told us that his girlfriend Claire had spoken to Danye about depression, and he arranged for all of us to meet so she could tell us what she knew. He did say he was depressed because he felt like it wasn't going nowhere. Do you remember when roughly that was? Could you place a month? Everything you told me. Was it like close to Everything we talked about. I am. Outside of the the crazy stuff. But everything that we talked about, bro. Well, well, honestly, we used to talk about depression because I was depressed too. And then that's when he came out and said that he was depressed also because of everything that was going on. And... Basically, he just felt like at that age, he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But he's always been like that, like, ambitious. And then it's like, if he feel like he's in a, like a crush for too long, he'll start getting frustrated. But he won't express it that much. But you can see it. I, I want to make sure I have this crystal clear on the timing. Because Danye went out to... Colorado and then Idaho in 2017, and then he didn't die until later in 2018. Yeah, this, this was before he went to This is when, Idaho. okay, so this, and then this is also the time when he expresses to you, yeah. I'm, I'm also depressed. Yeah. When he came back after going to Idaho, he came home and then starts staying with his mother and with Derek, was he still coming over a lot in that time? Yeah, he would come to see Damon because Damon would uh, cut his hair. But it wasn't, we didn't have any more conversations about his depression. He just asked how I was feeling. Okay. Without any visible wounds and with a chair turned over near the tree, it was decided that Danye died by suicide. His best friend Damon doesn't question that conclusion, but only wonders what if. What if he had gotten with Danye that day? Listening to this show and thinking about the facts of the case, we're sure that you listeners have probably wondered how would it be possible to hang someone against their will without hurting them first? We've asked ourselves that question over and over, and so we have imagined a variety of scenarios. When imagining how someone could get the drop on Danye, the first thing people might wonder is if Danye had been drugged. The toxicology report on Danye only found metabolites of cannabis. His urine was positive for 11-hydroxy-THC and carboxy-THC. Since these metabolites can linger in the body for a long time, we called the toxicology lab to ask if they thought Danye was high when he died. What was the person's name on this case? The person's name was Danye Jones. The report says that there was some THC metabolites found uh, within the urine sample, but it does not list the units. At the, on the header page, it says, uh, result confirmed present. And then following that, there's like a space for units, but it's blank. Uh, hold on. Let me, let, me, let me try to pull this case file up here and see if I can look at it and see what you're talking about. So what are you trying to do, though? Like, what are you, what are you trying to figure out, though? Like, oh, I'm once trying to... get the uh, units, what does that mean, though? Like, once what, you... Uh, how... I wanted to know, is this something that was residual in this person's system from, like, a week, two weeks, three weeks prior to them uh, dying, or were they high when they died? So, if you're a smoker, depending upon how heavy of a smoker you are, you can test positive weeks or even a couple months later, certainly. It depends on what level of a smoker you are. So, it's possible that this person could have smoked two weeks ago. In the case, it sort of matters if the person was using 
right then and there or yeah. if it was like two weeks prior. So, yeah, I, uh, can't, I can't answer that. You need to subpoena somebody to find out some real uh, information. Unless you're part of law enforcement or something, you're probably not going to be able to get that. It's just that because it doesn't list the uh, the quantity found. So if it was done in the urine, does it say it was done in urine? Yeah, it says specimen U1, which they list as the urine. That's why. That's what I can tell you. Because the urine wasn't quantitated. It was just confirmed present. Is there a way to know if this person was high that night or... Is there no way to know that? Okay. Uh, certainly there is, yeah. Um, my opinion would be no. Would there have been something else found besides these metabolites had they been high at the moment? They would have been a show. They would have shown up. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The toxicology report does say they looked for alcohol and found none, as well as common date rape drugs, which are benzodiazepines, called midazolam and temazepam, and found none. They don't seem to have looked for good old-fashioned chloroform, a.k.a. trichloromethane, but maybe that's because it's too old school? Who knows? And then, of course, there is the YouTube search we mentioned at the end of episode 8. 
When going through Danye's YouTube search history, we found a search for how to tie a hangman's noose with a blanket that occurred on October 16th, Danye's last full day alive. The video it links to was posted by a user named ITS Tactical, and it's just shy of five minutes long. The video demonstrates how to tie a hangman's noose, but with a rope, not a blanket. Danye's YouTube history shows that the video was watched all the way through. It would be easy to see this search and try to close the book on the idea that Danye was murdered. And we admit, at first, we began to lean that way. But before we brought it to Melissa's attention, we wanted to be damn sure of what we'd found. Right from the get-go, we noted that Danye wasn't hanged with a hangman's noose. We thought, if Danye needed to watch a video on how to tie a knot to hang himself, the knot that was ultimately chosen wasn't this one. And the only other searches he ever did on knot tying were for how to tie ties. You know, like a tie you wear with a suit. So if Danye did watch this video, he didn't learn anything from it that he would end up putting to use. So we scrutinized the search history data and found that it contained something that we thought was very bizarre. Just buckle in and stay with us here. The hangman's new search was the 27th in his list of searches, meaning there were 26 other searches that he made after the new search. And those searches were for a lot of random things you wouldn't imagine would be on someone's mind if they were trying to learn how to hang themselves. For instance, there's a search for gap funding for real estate investors, and one for how to be your own financial advisor. There's a search for when your boss makes you work mandatory Saturdays, and even one for how to use HP OfficeJet 6600. We couldn't help but get stuck on the question, why would someone planning to take their own life in a matter of hours be looking up videos on investments, it was Farrakhan, what life is like in Boston, how to use an office jet printer. After scrutinizing these searches, another oddity came to light. For the 26 searches that come after the hangman's news search, none of the corresponding videos were actually watched. In fact, every search done after the hangman's news search actually corresponded to a video that Danye watched in the days and weeks before the 16th. So, for instance, there's a search for Kendrick Lamar, Heart, Part 4, which Danye actually watched on the 7th, so 11 days prior. There's a search for What Info Does a Private Lender Need, which was actually something he watched on October 12th, so four days prior. That weird office jet printer search? He watched that video on September 29th, so more than two weeks prior. And again, None of these 26 searches are for videos that Danya would actually watch on the 16th after the hangman's news search. Why would Danya do this? Make these 26 searches after the hangman's news search, but not watch any of the videos? What does it all mean? It looks as though, perhaps, there was intent to push the search for the hangman's news video down the search queue. It's not pushed so far as to be gone entirely, but it's pushed far enough down the stack so it isn't immediately visible when one taps the search bar to begin a new search. This could easily be accomplished by randomly tapping old searches in the search history over and over again without actually watching any of the content that they link to until the desired search is pushed to the bottom of the pile. Why would he push his hangman's new search far down the queue? If he was trying to hide it from others, he could have used this same technique and pushed it all the way out so it could never be found. 
He also could open his Google history and delete the search and the viewing of the video entirely. And we have to ask, who would he have been hiding it from? No one in his household had his phone passcode. If he planned on dying by suicide that night, only hours later, the intent would readily be clear by morning. The placement of the hangman's news search beneath 26 other searches that he had originally made in the days and weeks prior looked to us like a pattern of activity aimed at concealment. Yes, it could have been Danye who aimed to conceal the fact that he made this search, but it would be odd that he wouldn't conceal it entirely or delete it if he was in fact so afraid of somebody finding it. Then, there is the timing of the search. It happened at 7.53 p.m., and the corresponding video was watched at 7.54 p.m. This is exactly when Danye would have been on the couch, in the basement, watching the Boston Celtics season opener next to his stepfather, Derek. By the time I got downstairs, he already had the game on. So I sat down and went, we were going back and forth, you know, shooting shit like, like guys do, you know. I'm a Lakers man, so, you know, they put us almost in the opposition of each other. So that's what made the game so good because he's a Celtics fan, I'm a Lakers man. When I came down there, you know, he has his paperwork out, you know, he's doing his research, but he's also watching the game at the same time. So it's kind of like, you know, he's kind of back and forth with it. And then once we really got into the game, you know, we kind of just settled in and watched the game with it. Did you get up at any point, like from the time that you went down there until you left for work? Did you, do you think you probably left the basement once or twice, or did you stay down there the whole time? You know, I can't really recall. I don't think I left the basement at all when I went down there. You know, because we have cold drinks in the refrigerator, so I didn't have to go upstairs or grab nothing, you know. What about, like, what would you have done during halftime? Did you think get up, stretch your legs, or probably just stay down there and hung out with them, or, or what? I, I, I never went upstairs. I really don't think I went upstairs at all during that time. Did no, you do you recall him watching anything on the phone? Like, would he have been watching the game and then like watching a video on his phone? Do you, do you recall anything like that? If he did, I really can't recall if he did or not. But he was writing down some stuff. He was doing he was doing some writing. How would you describe the mood? Just just routineish, you know. It was just a regular night for us at home. I mean, we talked about Gordon Haywood coming back. When he had a bad, when he had an injury or whatever. You know, just basketball stuff, just sports talk. I was giving him the business about the Lakers. I said, yeah, they probably, you know, beat, you know, Philly or whatever. They ain't going to beat the Lakers, you know. And, uh, you know, we was laughing about that or whatever. And then uh, I told him, I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and go to work, you know. Uh, I'll see y'all tomorrow when I get in. And he was like, all right, all right, all right, you know. I was getting out of work or whatever. And I went on upstairs and I'm going to kiss my wife before I go to work. And I, I was going out of there. The order of the search history plus the timing of the search made us again consider, maybe, there was more here than meets the eye. We told all of this to Melissa. And also the time for it was at 7.54 p.m., which is when he was watching basketball with Derek. Right. So that could mean a lot of things. Someone could say... You know, perhaps he did it when Derek got up to go to the bathroom or, you know, it was halftime and Derek went to get a snack and Danye quickly did that. So it's not proof, but it's interesting. That just don't make sense. The timing is is pretty odd. It would seem sort of strange to just jump right out of nowhere in the middle of this basketball game to quickly do that and then go right back to living life, you know. Right. There was one other detail that we found. 
the hangman's new search wasn't made from an android. It was made from an Apple device. So it wasn't made from the Android. Now, I do know that uh, Danye also had an iPhone. Well, you know what? He, I, well, I know he was using that um, Android phone mostly during that time. I want to talk to Derek about, I mean, his mood that night was nothing like of a mood where we would be concerned about anything, you know. He was excited that he was still laughing about this game, but that just don't sound right. According to the police report, Detective Matthew King, who was working alongside Detective Anderer the morning Danye died, checked both of Danye's phones. One, he said, was passcode protected, so he couldn't access it. The other, he wrote, was either broken or it had a dead battery. He had just lost his charger, so he would come and ask me, can you use mine? And sometimes I'll be like, dang, Danye, I'm using mine. And I, I really don't. I don't remember if he used it that day. I really don't think he did. I know I had it that night because I was in the spare bedroom. So I had it at that time when, it, you know, everything happened. It was upstairs. Melissa couldn't remember the last time Danye borrowed her iPhone charger, but she believes the evening that he died, she had it with her as she watched TV upstairs. Since Detective King found an iPhone with no charge the next morning, there is a chance at least that Danye's iPhone was not charged on the evening of the 16th. We just can't say for certain. Now, the most interesting thing, and this is what concerns me the most is that I went back in and I was trying to look at his history again and go through it, and some of that history seems to have been deleted since we looked at it the first time. There is stuff, yeah, there is stuff that we saw for October 17th, the viewing of about six music videos on YouTube. And, but when I went back to look at those, they're gone. When we first went through Danye's YouTube history, and saw that six music videos were watched on October 17th, we assumed they were watched by Danye in the early morning hours before he died. So after midnight, but before 4 a.m., when we revisited his data a few weeks later, any trace of activity for the 17th was gone. We documented it the first time. We took photographs of it, so we have photographs of it being there. And I can't say this for certain, but it makes me wonder, is someone still logged into his account somewhere, perhaps? Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. So, and there's other weird things. There's a lot of little weird things that, like, quite frankly, I'm not an expert and I can't explain. If someone has his password and is still logging into it, or perhaps... You know, there's maybe a device, like someone else's phone, that he logged into a long time ago. And then it's like one of those things where the password's saved and they can just switch back in. I don't know. I really don't. But my feeling is just that Google is this huge company. YouTube is a huge company. They're, you know, billion-dollar industry, and they make their money tracking data, you know, selling data, and keeping track of everything. So I don't think things just go missing by themselves. 
And again, I don't want to like oversell this, but there's a possibility just a, and maybe it's remote, maybe it's slim, but that if we can get to subpoena Google, we can see exactly who is logged in, making those searches, possibly deleting history, possibly reorganizing history. Because if somebody is doing that, I know I got chills too. When we were thinking about this, we remembered a piece of a conversation we once had with Derek and Melissa. Like I said, I had saw him. He was into his tablet thing, mm. looking um, for. He was looking at low on YouTube. That's what it was. Did you see a tablet? I think it was a tablet. Is there a tablet to be looked at? You remember where that tablet was? It was downstairs at the other house. No. It was a tablet that it was It could have been a borrowed tablet or something, you know, because I do remember seeing him working on a tablet. Mm-hmm. And it could have been a borrowed tablet or something, some mm-hmm. friend, somebody could let him use because I don't recall seeing it, you know, before anymore. or anymore after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. YouTube's search history is not device-specific. It's account-specific. So if you log into your Google account on a tablet, and make searches, and then go to your YouTube history on your phone, the searches will still be visible. If it's true that Danye borrowed a tablet from somebody and had logged into YouTube on it and then returned the tablet before logging out, whoever had that tablet could make searches and delete activity, and we would find that going through his history on his phone. It could be a door that blows wide open and is great and helps answer all the questions, it could also be something that gets an answer and it's not what we expected. And we go, oh, oh, okay. And it's not, you know, so I just want to make sure, like, I don't want to get your hopes way up. Right. But I think we need to pursue it. And the problem is the only ones who can pursue it are people who have legal subpoena power. Right. Okay. All right. It's hard not to see this YouTube search as a piece of critical evidence, a digital fingerprint belonging to either Danye himself or to a conspirator in his murder. But as it stands, we have no way of pinning down exactly which device from which Wi-Fi router was used to make the search. We also have no way of opening Danye's iPhone. We needed someone with subpoena power. Plus, there were other questions. If Danye was actually murdered, the planning and execution of the act would seem to require the murderers have a lot of not only skill and ability to hide their deeds, but also inside knowledge about Danye's life and the layout of his home. How would all of this be possible? Is it possible? Or does even considering Danye's death a homicide at this point stretch the imagination farther than it rationally wants to bend. That's next time on After the Uprising. After the Uprising is directed, produced, investigated, written, and reported by myself, Raina Vyshelsky, and John Duffy. John Duffy was also the editor. Dave Cassidy was producer. Sound engineering, design, and mix by Josh Condon. Executive producers were Matt McDonough and Tina Xeros for Now This, Brett Kushner for Group 9 Media, and Jess Borave was executive in charge of production. Jonathan Hartwig and Bradley Rayford were consulting producers. Eliza Craig was assistant producer and did additional reporting. Mallory Kenoy was a writer's assistant. Kristen McVicker and Taya Wilson were production assistants. And Haley Klezmer was a post-production assistant. Fact-checking by Allison Humes. Theme song and other music by Zachary Walter. Legal by Keith Sklar and Peter Yazzie. 
Special thanks to Anne Frado, Danny Gonzalez, Barbara Koppel, Alex Lester, Bethann Macaluso, Emily Marinoff, Ruth Vaca, and the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. After the Uprising is a production of Double Asterisk, iHeartMedia, and Now This in association with True Stories. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have useful information about the death of Donye Jones or anything we've covered, please leave a message on our tip line at 347-674-7401. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.